So Merry Christmas to everyone. Merry Christmas. I hope you all have all your to-do lists checked off and so you can really just enjoy this time today and, and tomorrow with family. I know um, one thing I haven't done is mailed out my out-of-town friends, they're my Christmas cards, which I, that's why I put Happy New Year on there as well. It gives me an extra week, to, uh, so that's a life hack for you if you're interested. Um, so we are concluding our Advent series, as you see on the screen behind me, asking the question, who is he? So to conclude uh, this series, I'd invite you to please open your Bibles to Mark 15. Yes, Mark 15 is the narrative of Jesus' death. Um, I know I do struggle with time sometimes. You don't need to remind me today's Christmas Eve, not Good Friday, okay? <laughs> um, and you might be wondering, like, why in the world would you preach this on Christmas Eve? Right? Seriously, right? Joy to the world. Uh, Merry Christmas. This is sad, right? Why? Um, so this is something I believe very deeply, and, and that is that true joy, if we want to experience true joy, true joy grows out of the soil of lament. And joy without ever experiencing sadness um, and lament is not genuine. It's fake. Um, because this world is real and has a lot to lament about. This world has a lot of mess. It's chaotic. Um, it's broken. It's brutal. Uh, just savage sometimes. And so there's no way we can just jump to joy without lament. There's no free pass. Pass, go collect $200 and skip the valley of the shadow of death and jump to joy. That doesn't work. That's not reality. That's not the Christian life. And that's actually a really dangerous thing to do, actually, is to try to bypass uh, the valley of the shadow of death to try to get to the gift on the other side. And that's a sermon for another day. Um, but, uh, you know, the saying goes, the darkness is always deepest before the dawn, right? And as Scripture says, Jesus talks about the seed that has to die in the ground before it grows and the biblical pattern of death before resurrection, before joy. And so... We recognize that the miracle of the resurrection brings us joy. And so there is, if there's any joy in us that's true manifestation of that, it's miraculous, right? We can rejoice and praise God and give glory to God because of the resurrection, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that's kind of where we're going today. I know it's a little uh, unorthodox, but uh, (laughs) I I think it'll be a blessing to you. And I think we'll see the message of Christmas and God with us uh, in our passage together this morning. So... I would just want to read part of it right now before we begin, and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Uh, so starting in verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Our Father, we thank you. And praise your name for the King of Kings who came and was rejected and despised by men, afflicted. We esteemed him not. We did not see who he was. We thank you that he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He went through the forsakenness of his friends and his people and his nation. And even you allowing him to bear your wrath and suffering and allowing him to die. We recognize that we oftentimes want to reject the idea of suffering, especially in this season, and yet right underneath the surface in many of our lives is that reality of pain um, that sometimes comes across um, 
underneath a veneer of fake happiness. And I, I just pray that we'd be able to peel that back, to let you heal us, to let you see us, uh, let us be seen by you, and to, be, and to receive your love, to receive your grace, to receive your presence that transforms us within us. So I pray that you would come and you would uh, just honor, uh, let, let us honor your word, let us honor you, let us see Jesus for who he really is. And so I pray that you would do that and let our hearts see that and worship and glorify Christ and treasure him above all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So literature throughout the centuries has portrayed uh, the sacrificial warrior or the sacrificial king as someone who risks his life for the good of the people. Um, there's many instances in this throughout just, um, just different indigenous tribes and, and nations. But the more recent one that's uh, within the last century, at least, that's my favorite, that has my favorite literary character, is Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. Um, so if you know me at all, that's not a surprise. Uh, so he was a king who grew up in obscurity. He risked his life for his friends. He even pledged his allegiance to Frodo and said, I will risk my life my life or death, to keep you alive, um, to protect him at all costs. Except he was way more powerful than him, and he could have been self-preserving. Um, in, in the books, not the movie, you know, you got to read the books, uh, there, there's instances where what proves him to be the king in the end is that people see him heal in his unique way, uh, and the only way that a king can heal. And yet he was met with suspicion by his people, and he eventually led what was a suicide mission, looked like a suicide mission to anyone rational, uh, to the gates of Mordor with only a small fraction of the army that, uh, compared to the size of the army that Sauron, the Dark Lord, was sitting there waiting for him. And so in the books, again, not the movie, um, this was referred to by one of his generals who went with him as the greatest jest in the history of Gondor, as in the biggest joke ever, that we're going to go with this little small group of people and go fight um, the massive hordes of Sauron. So one would think that a king would be self-preserving, especially in this instance, and stay back um, away from the battle. That seemed hopeless, right? But he knew what he needed to do. He needed to pierce the darkness. He needed to draw out the enemy so that the mission, if you know the story, I really hope you know the story. If you don't, I'm feel, <laughs> I feel so bad for you. Uh, uh, but like, yeah, you really need to... Uh, fine, watch the movie if you don't read the books. But, you know... But he draws the army out to hope against hope, as Tolkien has this phrase, against all hope, uh, it, it, it was accomplished. And so all the stories that we love, you know, modern stories, ancient stories, really, that speak of sacrifice, they ultimately point to, of course, the greatest story, right? The greatest story ever told that we are investigating and looking into this morning and this month. As Paul says in Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. And this is in your bulletin. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become as, come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Another one of my really good friends who... Uh, has passed away is C.S. Lewis, and he puts it this way. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the height of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. 
One is the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. So today, we're going to look at a passage that brings into focus Jesus' stooping down under that great burden for us. We've been asking all month, who is he, right? Who is he? And there are so many ways to answer this question. I recognize that. So four weeks is not nearly enough to answer that question. It's difficult to pick these texts and to land on a passage even today. But today, to answer that question, we're going to see how Mark answers it for us. We're going to see Jesus as the forsaken king, the forsaken son, as Mark reveals him to be. Mark is answering this question of who is he, and he answers it throughout his gospel in three kind of bookends in his gospel, and revelatory kind of uh, images of who Jesus is. And so I want us to get a running start, so if you just bear with me real briefly, so we can slow down to chapter 15 and capture the beauty of Jesus' identity that compels us to worship him and compels us to trust him and surrender to him. So Mark has three bookends, and the first, of course, is chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we see... You know the story, Jesus is baptized, and when he's baptized, the words are, the clouds were ripped open, and a voice from God came down and said what? This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was the beloved son, and he didn't do anything. He hadn't done anything yet. He had just gotten baptized. But he goes on to do powerful miracles after being baptized by John the Baptist, who was an Elijah figure. So the heavens are ripped open, the voice of God comes, and Jesus does these miracles, and in power, and eventually it kind of culminates in the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is shown in all his power, but the clouds, instead of being opened, are, are covering him. And Jesus sees Elijah and Moses and speaks with them, and the disciples are like, wow, this power is insane. Like, we could wipe out the whole Roman Empire and just like that. But the voice of God comes again from the clouds and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And through the next six chapters... Jesus is talking. You see a lot of red letters in the next six chapters teaching. And a lot of what he teaches is how this kingdom, this powerful kingdom is going to come. And it comes through his death and the resurrection. He foretells his death multiple, multiple times. And the disciples are confused. People don't understand. But we need to listen to how the kingdom is going to come. Especially, namely through his death and his resurrection. So again, we bring, that brings us to our passage, which is the third sort of bookend. And so, as we come up here, we, we, we get this running start, and we see, if we look at chapter 14 real briefly, Jesus is revealed as the forsaken king. And I just want to, if you just look back, you see, if you just even look at your headings of your, of your passages in, in your Bibles, probably, you'll see how uh, he was praying in Gethsemane, and his friends left him. His friends didn't stay up with him. Judas betrayed him. We see uh, the, he faces his, the Sanhedrin, and when he's on trial, Peter denies him. Peter forsakes him. Peter abandons him. And as we keep going, we get into chapter 15. And verse 9 of chapter 15, Pilate says, uh, Are you the, the, Do you want to release the king of the Jews for you? Talking to the, the Israelites. And he asked Jesus in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? So, this king motif is still going, and he's, but he's been, everybody is leaving him. Everybody is abandoning him. And he asked the people of Israel, 
the king, do you want your king or not? And they said, crucify him. So he's abandoned and forsaken as the king by his own people. And that brings us to, to verse 18, and when he's mocked by the soldiers, and they put this crown of thorns on his head as a mockery. And then we get to our passage this morning. So I have it there for you on the screen, verse, verse 24. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide which, what each should get. And now it was nine in the morning, and when they crucified him, the inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down. This is the forsaken King of Israel. And in that time, the Romans really knew how to kill people, and they knew how to make a spectacle, and there are many messiahs that people claimed to be messiahs before Jesus. And by this point, we all, they all understood a crucified messiah is a failed messiah. A crucified king is a failed king. Whenever Rome destroyed a political figure, the whole movement was as good as dead. So even though we know the ending of the story, right? We know that he rose again, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't let it take away from the fact that before Jesus is the exalted king, he was the forsaken king. He was the crucified king in our place. And a question for us this morning is, are we okay with a crucified king? Are we okay following a forsaken king, a humble king? Will we forsake him? Are we turned off by this spectacle? Are we turned off by this humility? Is the gospel a stumbling block for us? And you might, on a theological test, say, yes, Jesus died a humble death, and Jesus was crucified, and you might acknowledge that. But we can tell by our lives what kind of gospel we prefer, what kind of king we prefer. Do we prefer in our lives to dominate others instead of serve others? Do we prefer bullying others? And control over kindness. How does the story of this humble, forsaken king reshape our life story? We need to consider that. Again, it goes back to Philippians 2 earlier, and Paul encourages us, consider this attitude of Christ, that he took on flesh in this way. Adopt the same attitude of Christ. Do we follow this king in humility, and not pursue glory, control in our parenting, in our family, in our work, in our interactions with other people? Are we okay with the forsaken king? And are we truly following a king who went to the depths, as we talked about earlier, went to this deep depth of suffering, humiliation for us? This is the way of the cross. This is the way of discipleship. Are we following this forsaken king? The second way that Jesus is revealed is as the forsaken son. 
the forsaken son. So number two, Jesus is revealed as the forsaken son. And I'll just read the first two verses here. In verse 33, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So we look at this, we see darkness at the wrong time of day. And Jesus' cry comes at the culminating point of that darkness, acknowledging the darkness is sort of a symbol, acknowledging what is true, that Jesus is left alone. My God is a a personal cry. He is owning God as his own. He is not rebelling. He's not uh, defiant, even in asking why. He, He knows why, right? He knows why. But he's acknowledging the reality that he was truly forsaken, truly abandoned. And just a side note, we spent some Sunday school classes talking about the Trinity, and one of the classes was in this regard about the, how the Trinity works in this passage, and so I can refer you to that for all this theological details. No, Jesus was not separated from the Trinity uh, at this point. However, he truly, and, and in his humanity, he truly felt abandoned. He truly experienced Abandonment, we saw last week, he was made like us. He suffered like us. So that he, this is his perfection, at becoming per, a perfect high priest so he can experience and feel the things we have felt on the deepest possible level. He really felt loneliness and abandonment. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew that this was the plan. And he chose to go headlong into this darkness. He walked through this dark valley of the shadow of death, physically experientially, emotionally, as we saw last week in Hebrews 2, that beautiful image of Jesus as our older brother, made like his brothers and sisters in every way, yet without sin, so that he might defeat death. So he felt all these things. He went through all these things in his humanity. And it's really important, important for us to point that out. The emotion, he, the deep, profound emotion, must have felt here is loneliness. He also felt many other things, right? Sadness. Uh, anger, um, you can argue dread or fear in Gethsemane, anticipating the cross. And he went through all these deep, dark valleys and calls us to do the same. <clears throat> and we can face these dreadful things because Christ has faced them for us. We can face them and experience them and walk faithfully in the midst of our own trials, in the midst of our own pain, in the midst of our loneliness and sadness and, and fear as we follow Christ. And in, in one of the books I read recently, I believe it was one of the, I think, Untangling Emotions or Gentle and Lowly. I get them all confused, but just kind of summarizing some of the things we as a church have been working through. Because some, we've had studies on the, diff, those different books. And it, it mentions that Jesus truly felt sadness at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus truly felt uh, loneliness here. He felt um, anger at the Pharisees when he flipped the tables in the temple. He felt those per- because he's perfect. Like, it's a perfect response from a perfect person to emotionally feel all those things perfectly, deeply, way more than we could. And I think that's just so profound for us to think that he went to that depth of feeling, went to that depth of even emotion for us and experienced those things in a deep and dark way here. And and these obvious truths about Jesus' emotions and the way Jesus experienced life in his humanity, they 
if we really think about it, it, it flies in the face of a lot of the advice we give uh, about emotions, about dealing with pain, right? Um, and, 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 you know, if you just do your devotions, you won't be sad, right? If you're, if you're holy enough, you won't have bad feelings. Um, and it ends up being like a cross between uh, Job's friends and Joel Osteen, which is like <laughs> really weird. Right? And, and, uh, one biblical counselor, Bob Kellerman, calls this the, uh, and he, I think he coined it, the emotional prosperity gospel. Whereas if you, ju- I just promise, if you just check these boxes, you won't feel anything bad. Uh, if you pray hard enough, your emotional struggles vanish. If we obey all God's commands, then our emotional struggles just go away. Diminish. There's no more fear, no more pain, no more depression, no more sadness, no more tears. You check everything off, then you experience this constant victory and don't feel anything. And just joy. Um, now, the reality is our sin, and, and so confessing sin and working through our sin is important. Our sin certainly affects our emotional uh, uh, life, right, and, uh, and experiences but this, this gospel, this false gospel, claims eternal promises that are in the future as if they're present day. But God will wipe every tear from every eye. We know that that is true in the future. As Revelation 21, 4 says, But today, right now, God collects our tears in a bottle. Psalm 56. We're promised that there will be no more death, but today we die. We're promised in the future there's no more crying and pain and sadness. But today we mourn, we cry, we lament. The psalmists give us words for this. Psalm 142 says, I cry aloud to the Lord and plead for him for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him and I reveal my trouble to him. So these are God's promises for new creation, but we can't think that that just because if we're holy now, we can bring them into the present um, as if negative things and negative emotions and negative experiences don't exist. That's not a promise for us. So the question is, how do we remain faithful in the midst of feeling all those things and going through them today? And that's where we look to Christ. What do we do with all the things that come up for us? Another one of my dead friends says, what do, we, what do you do with the mad that you feel? It's Mr. Rogers, all right? Uh, but, like, you know, I, I had to get my church history quote in today. Uh, but, you know, it, the question is, what do you do with those emotions? It's not that it's bad as in, what do you do? How do you act when you feel those things? We're not a victim of our environment and blaming others. We have to walk through this with Jesus because he was the holiest person to ever live. He felt these things deeper than we can ever imagine. So our own holiness isn't like a, a get-out-of-emotional-jail-free card, right? Just because we do good doesn't mean that we won't feel these things. Jesus, who's the holiest person to ever live, felt these things. We can rejoice that our high priest, as we saw last week, made like us in every way, plunged deeper and deeper than we could ever go, ever go into suffering for us. We can walk with him through the valley, not have to walk around it. We can face those things head on with Christ because as we see in this passage, he was the forsaken son who walked through this deep, dark valley for us. And and as we return to our passage, be sure to be looking out for the connections I mentioned with the the bookends in Mark. So we look at verse 35. Jesus just cries this cry of abandonment, forsakenness, and then some standing there heard this, and they said, see, he's calling Elijah. We have Elijah mentioned, which was mentioned in the other two bookends. And the reason they probably say this is because 
crucifixion is death by asphyxiation, lack of air, right? And so when he cries out, Eloi, he might have, they might have kind of heard him and thought he was saying Elijah. This word sounds similar. So um, that might have been what they thought and misunderstood. And knowing that Elijah comes before the Messiah, they're like, oh, wait, why? maybe he's trying to pull something off here, right? So they say, see, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and fixed it on a stick and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes down to take him, comes to take him down. And uh, that's basically them trying to help him with pain. Possibly that, that sour wine might have been able to alleviate some pain. But um, they offer that to him and see if Elijah comes down. But at the end of this, Jesus dies. Jesus let out a loud cry, verse 37, and breathed his last. Death is the ultimate sign of forsakenness. God let him die. Yes, this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew this was happening. There was a plan before the foundation of the world. He knew this was coming. But in the plan, it was for God to allow Jesus to die. The ultimate result of the curse that Jesus bore for us is his death. We look at verse 38. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The word there in verse 38 for the temple curtain being torn is the same root word as the clouds being torn open in chapter 1. Revealing who Jesus is. Revealing his identity. And what's behind the curtain in the temple? What's supposed to be there? The Ark of the Covenant and technically the Shekinah glory, right? God. So the temple, the, the curtain is torn in two, open. What's behind the curtain? And it's almost like Mark doesn't even give attention to that. He pans back. Where is God? Is God behind the curtain? No. He pans back to the body of the dead Messiah. The sin, and God's voice Torn open, right? We expect to hear the voice of God revealing the identity of Jesus. And what, whose voice do we hear? It's the voice of the most God-forsaken person you can imagine. The voice of an occupier of the Holy Land, right? An enemy of the people of God. And a Torah-breaking, uncircumcised Gentile who right now is part of the murder of the Son of God. He's the epitome of God forsakenness, this Gentile. And yet, and he was the one who's supposed to be destroyed when Yahweh returned to Zion. And in the, in the minds of the Jewish people, Yahweh returns to Zion and wipes out our enemies. And yet when Yahweh finally returns to Zion and is crucified on Zion, the only person who recognizes him is the Gentile, the Roman centurion. And it's his voice that we hear. And this, this gives us hope. This is you and me outside of Christ. Right? This is uh, the Gentiles who were brought near. As, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us all one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Mark has masterfully put this together to show that in this revelation of who Jesus is, this is our true Messiah. And he's revealed as the forsaken king, revealed as the forsaken son. And he is our Messiah. Our Messiah as a, as a covenant head, our representative. And so his identity affects our identity if we are in him. If we are in him. And that brings me to just implore you, if you have not surrendered to this king, if you have not surrendered your life to confess your sin, to recognize you need this kind of love, you need this kind of sacrifice, you need this substitute, you need this God-man to go to this depth of suffering for you so you won't have to. Because separation from God is a real threat to all of us. And so this, this compels us to turn to Christ. This loving sacrifice for us, showing us true love from the eternal God, the eternal Father, brought by the eternal Son, shows us what this love is like, what God is like. So would you turn to him today if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus' death and his resurrection for you. I implore you, you need this because God-forsakenness is a real threat outside of Christ. His identity affects our identity. And that brings us to point three. Point three in which I want to revisit a few verses of our text again and come back to them. Point three is that the Messiah identifies with forsaken people. The Messiah identifies with you and me, with forsaken people. And I just want to give you the big idea before I jump in here. Jesus plumbed the depths of suffering so that we will never be alone in our suffering. Jesus plumbed the depths of suffering so that we will never be alone in our suffering. And if you just revisit the cry in Psalm, from Psalm 22, the quote from Psalm 22, which is in verse 34, this is one of the most mind-blowing verses to me in all Scripture. And the thing is, Psalm 22 is a psalm that, for the congregation, for anybody to read and for anybody to identify with. There are royal psalms, right, which, like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, that's clearly talking about the future king and the Messiah, that's exclusive to him whoever that was, and they didn't know, of course, back then. But there was also plenty of psalms of lament. That's for everybody. For everybody, it's in the songbook of Israel. Everybody to cry out to God. Everybody to collectively lament, to mourn, to question, to ask God questions, and to come before him. And that's what Psalm 22 is. And Jesus clearly knew from other passages in Mark why he was going to die. You know, he didn't have to ask, God, why are you forsaking me? He knew that answer. So this isn't him questioning. I would suggest to you he's taking the true meaning behind the Psalms of Lament and identifying with all those millions before and millions after who cried out to God with those prayers. He's bringing all that under himself. And we preached Psalm 22 through our summer psalm series, and you might remember it ends well. It ends well for the psalmist because he's saved from death. And so uh, it doesn't take away from the fact here that Jesus was left to die. 
Because his dying cry was just expresses the abandonment that death is. So unlike the psalmist, this is the, the interesting thing here. The psalmists were saved from death. Their deliverance, God's vindication of them is deliverance from death. But God's intervention here to vindicate Jesus is actually allowing him to go through death. To die so that in his death, he overturns death. He's the one who overturns death. Death is the most remote place you can be left, right? The most remote place you can be left to be forsaken. The ultimate curse from Genesis 3, right? Upon humanity for our rebellion. It's the ultimate manifestation of a broken relationship with God because it's not what we were meant for. One of my uh, professors used to say that every death is an assassination attempt by Satan. And it's an attempt because if we're in Christ... It's only an attempt, and it's not ultimately successful. But it ultimately is the evidence of what is broken. It's the evidence of this curse that we are under in the, because of the fall. But the reality is, because of Jesus, you cannot plunge to the depth that is God-forsakenness. Because of Jesus. You cannot get down there. And... and to illustrate this, I, I, use, uh, I use this with people I meet with sometimes in counseling is that, so when I used to work in uh, the hospital, I used to work in the emergency room, and we had a, not all of my coworkers were like mentally stable at times, and uh, someone lost it on a really, really rude patient. He kind of deserved it, but she threw something at him, and she got fired. And so the management's like, wow, these people are like struggling. Like we, we need to come up with something to help them. And so she, uh, she came up with this mood elevator example, so uh, I, a metaphor. So you got to check in with your mood elevator. What level are you on? How do you feel today? You know, and I guess it was like an awareness piece. Like I, I, they, they were trying, okay? They were trying. Um, in all seriousness, though, we check in with us. Where are we today? And there are plenty of things that just if we're really honest, drop us down and down and down. Marriage problems, right? Family strife, wayward kids, or barrenness, or seasonal mood swings, or depression, anxiety, chronic pain, health issues, sickness, cancer, loss of a loved one that we're lamenting this season, death. And some of you are here this morning and maybe just feel that just right down the things going right through the crust of the earth. Maybe you're not there this morning. Maybe you used to be there. Maybe you will be there in the future. And it just, it just feels like you're going down to the depths of the earth. And you get down there, and here's the, the deal, and this is why this passage is so beautiful uh, today, this morning, is because when you get down to that like dungeon level 50 where you're like, this is it. Like, this is God-forsakenness right here. That, when those doors open, that's God-forsakenness. I'm alone. And those doors open, and on the other side is God. In pierced flesh, saying, I've been here. I've been farther, and you can't go any farther without me. I'm with you. That, friends, is Emmanuel. God with us. God in flesh 
went to the depths of God-forsakenness so that we would never be God-forsaken. That should blow our minds. That is Emmanuel. The psalmist says, if I go to the depths, you are there. He is down there. We can't get to that lowest depth because Jesus plumbed the depth for us. For us. And you may certainly feel this way. You may certainly feel God forsaken. Um, even though you might check off again on a theology test that. I know I'm not, right? But your felt experience, you experience it in a, in a certain way. And it may appear to those looking in on your life that you are. And as Christians, as I hope you know, we're not exempt from suffering. In fact, we are promised suffering. Merry Christmas. Like, <laughs> Jesus said, uh, my followers will suffer. But may it be our goal, that is Paul's goal in Philippians 3. He says, my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. So in this life, persecution, suffering is real. It's real, and it's in front of our faces all the time. And resurrection glory feels like a really, really distant glimmer. It's it's real, and the hope is there, but it's a distant glimmer of hope. And we can have courage because our king plunged into the valley headfirst. He has walked the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't need to bypass that valley because he's there. We don't need to go around with our coping mechanisms to try to deny it or go with our religiosity and try to deny that it's there. He has gone headfirst into it. He knows every nook and cranny in there. right? He has defeated every bad guy in there. Our victorious king has done that as we saw last week. So through his forsakenness and through the victory over death on the other side, we do not have to fear death. We do not have to fear loneliness. We will never be alone. God is with us. Jesus plumbed the depths of suffering so that wherever we fall on that scale of suffering, and I encourage you not to minimize where you're at, because wherever you're at, you can still deny it. You can still pretend it's not there. No, it's there. And wherever you're at, Jesus is there with you. We will never be alone with our suffering. God is with us. Praise him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you have plumbed the depths of suffering. You are Emmanuel, God with us. We can bring all the mess that we are. We can look it straight in the face and know that there is no brokenness, no suffering, no pain, no sin that is too great for our great, strong king to bear. We can unburden ourselves at the cross. The cross where you bled and died, where you were forsaken. We thank you, for Jesus, for plumbing those depths for us. We thank you so much that we can rest in your finished work, and may we trust that truth. May we have courage today to know that you are with us in whatever we're going through, Whatever pain and anger we feel, betrayal we feel, frustration we feel, sickness, 
pain, whatever it is, we know that you can be with us. And you're not just a compatriot in us, in, in our suffering with us, you have victory over it. We thank you that you are God with us. We pray that we would trust in you, surrender to your love for us. We pray that we remember this so that we can walk through this valley and experience true joy on the other side. And so would you do that in our hearts? Would you change our hearts even this morning? Would you help us, we pray, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.